Well, let's continue our study in the book of Philippians, please, this morning. Philippians, and we're going to be in the fourth chapter, starting the fourth chapter. I find often we as Christians have the right position on things, but sometimes have a horrible disposition to go along with it. You know what I'm talking about? The Bible commands us to speak the truth, correct? But it says speak the truth in love. And sometimes we forget the love part of it. I've heard preachers, you know, I'm the fighting fundamentalist and I don't care and I just tell people off and blah, 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 blah. Well, good for you. But how effective is that? Now, I believe in standing for truth and I believe in proclaiming the truth. As we proclaim the truth, it is going to be offensive to some. But the message is what needs to create the offense, not the messenger. The messenger can present the truth. People can still get offended by it, even though it's done in love. But we have too many messengers who present it in an unloving fashion. Hey, did you know if you died right now, you're going to split hell wide open? You need to get saved. Want to get saved? No. What are you talking about? You know, I mean, it is true, right? But the way people present things is, is horrible. So, Christian, we need to not just be concerned about our position, but also our disposition. And I get tired of the excuse, well, it's just the way I am, they're going to have to suck it up. No, God can change you. He changed me, and he's still working on me, okay? Because I can have a very rough disposition. Because, frankly, sometimes I just don't care about people's whining. And I would love to just tell them, here's a straw, go suck it up. Okay, but I have learned that that is not very effective. I don't know why. It just seems like the right answer to me, but it doesn't seem to work. So I have had to learn to listen to the whining and then help people through it. Now, you say, wow, preacher, you're really just rough. I'm just telling you how I feel sometimes, okay? Because you know what? It's just the way it is sometimes, all right? But God has given me the grace and is helping me grow and trying to cut off the rough edges, okay? God is still working on me, right? Listen, I'll tell you how bad I was. I'm going to tell him myself. When we got married, my wife had a, a watering can. She had watered the flowers in the house or whatever, and she had left it in the bedroom. And I'm like, no, it was a, it was a, like a, a pitcher for um, drink is what it was, but she'd used it to water flowers. And she left it in the bedroom, and I went in the bedroom, and I'm like, what, what is this? She goes, this picture. I'm like, why is it here? She goes, because I was watering the flowers. I said, well, it belongs, and it could reach the kitchen from our bedroom. I launched it to the kitchen. I said, it belongs in the kitchen, and launched it. And she looked at me like, are you a complete idiot? <laughs> and it helped me realize, that, was that very effective? No. Okay, now I'd like to think if you talk to Susan, she says, he's not the man I married, okay? I try to be much more gracious with her today than I was then. That was not showing any grace. That was total stupidity on my part. But I was proving I'm the man of the house. Yeah, whatever that accomplished. You know what it did? Scared my wife. Scared my wife. And you know what I realized? If I keep treating her that way, all I'm going to have is a house of fear. James tells us in James 3.17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. 
So our position for the truth of God's word is important, but so is our attitude and disposition. So with that, Paul starts this chapter with several exhortations. Actually, there's a lot of exhortations in this chapter, but we're going to look at exhortations concerning our position and our disposition. And we're going to focus this morning on three of them. Let's read the first three verses. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Eudeus and I beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, hope those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other of my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. So here's the exhortations I want us to examine this morning. The first one is in verse 1 and deals with our position. And it is that we are exhorted to stand fast. The second and third deal with our disposition. The second exhortation in verse 2 was given to two particular ladies in the church. And this is the stand united. Then the third exhortation given to, in verse 3 was given to an individual, and this exhortation is to serve together. And so we're going to look at these three exhortations concerning our position and our disposition. Father, again, I pray you give us wisdom and your uh, understanding of your word this morning as we examine this passage and these exhortations. And Lord, help us to realize that both our position and our disposition do matter, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our position, we have the exhortation to stand fast. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for in my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord. We need to have an unmovable position. Despite what the world teaches, despite what the world says, you and I need to stand for the truth of God's Word. You know, I read something this morning that said Genesis is not an allegory, it's not a, a poem, it's not a, all these other things. It said it is the truth, it is real history. And you and I need to understand that despite what the world says, Genesis is still real history, right? Because you do understand that many in the church, many theologians at the turn of the last century, as Darwinism was becoming popular, capitulated and said, well, then we have to find out how to fit the Bible into science. And that is not how we treat the Word of God, because the Word of God stands, it is truth, and we must have a position that always says the Word of God is true, period. Unmovable in that position. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is in vain in the Lord. You know, I've heard people ask, well, you know, I heard so-and-so on the radio, I heard so-and-so on YouTube, and could it possibly be that maybe we misinterpreted that passage and it actually means da-da-da-da-da? Turn it off, it's garbage. If they're putting a question mark where God has put a period, turn it off, it's garbage. It's funny, Brother Al's not here this morning. hope he's okay, but um, he and I were talking the other week. He said he's been listening to this preacher who said that the great fish is what it says in the book of Jonah, but Jesus calls it a whale. He says that it actually technically is not a whale. Well, that puts a question mark where Jesus said it's a whale, right? And does it really matter? It was a big sea creature that swallowed Jonah. Okay, but here's, my, here's the point that he, was, he and I were talking about is how often do preachers put a question mark where God put a period? 
We need to stand fast. Jesus said it's a whale. Now, the Greek word could be translated large fish. Okay, but, you know, the translator said, hey, we're going to translate it whale. And I'm not going to sit there and argue over nitpickiness, right? And I'm not going to sit there and tell you it wasn't a whale. It was a big fish. You know, I don't know what it was. But I will say, tell you this. There are plenty of whales out there big enough to swallow a human being. And also, you know, I don't think it was like a shark. I mean, there's a lot of teeth in those and they're pretty sharp. Okay. I mean, let's just be real, folks. And again, does it really matter? God told the fish to swallow Jonah, and God told the fish to vomit up Jonah. And he had Jonah in his belly for three days. He served God's purpose doing so. We don't have to question it. Remember as a kid playing King of the Mountain? There's probably more boys than girls. Maybe there are some tomboys in here. But I remember my dad, we were adding on, and we had some dirt piles and rock piles, and my brother and I played King of the Mountain. And rock piles are great because when you're King of the Mountain and you push the other guy over and he falls on the rocks, that's, that's, more, that's more fun than when he falls on dirt, right? But when you're on the King of the Mountain, you, you stand on top of the hill and people trying to charge you and knock you off the hill, but you're the King of the Mountain, right, until they take you out. And then you're no longer King of the Mountain. Somebody else is. Okay, it's a boy game. So you and I need to be, if you will, that king of the mountain in that we are unmovable. You plant your feet, you're not going to be moved. You're going to stand firm. Don't be wishy-washy. Be solid in Bible doctrine. God's word is pure. We already read James 3.17. The wisdom that is from above is first pure. So don't muddy the waters. It's pure. And we need to defend it and not compromise it. Jude 3, exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. And then here's another thing that many do. 2 Peter 3.16, he writes of Paul, he says, "...is also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things, which are some things hard to be understood, which they are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures unto their own destruction." So. Peter, as he's referring to Paul's writing, which, by the way, he calls Scripture because he says, as other Scriptures, already recognized as Scriptures at that time, interestingly enough, says that the unlearned rest or twist. And so often people take verses and twist them. I'm trying to remember where the passage is. It's an Old Testament passage, and the address slips my mind at the moment. But it talks about God's arm is stretched out still. I heard a whole message on that. And in the context, what is it talking about? Anybody remember? God's arm is stretched out still. God's hand is still stretched out still. It was stretched out in judgment. You know what the whole message was? God's hand is still stretched out and receiving and inviting you. And I'm like, that is resting the scripture. Now, it's a true message that God is inviting, but that's not the passage to do it. You know why? Because the passage clearly is talking about God's hand is still extended in judgment, not in mercy. You want to talk about God's mercy, find a different passage. But don't take this because that phrase sounds good and twist it into something that's not saying. That is twisting scripture, and that was an incorrect message. Would you agree with that? And then we wonder why the world questions the Word of God, when we have preachers who won't even preach it plainly. Now, I could find many passages to talk about God's invitation and still extending out an invitation to all, but I would use a passage that that's clearly what it's talking about, not a passage talking about judgment. 
But this is what happens when we read one verse or one phrase and then we go to preaching. Because a text without a context is just a pretext. Remember we studied that on Wednesday, a couple weeks ago. Remain steadfast in spite of persecution. Philippians 1.27, if you go back, it says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, for whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see, the Philippians probably were being persecuted, starting to face some persecution. And Paul, um, Paul was when he was there, and this church, again, because the church goes against the current of the day, and it's still supposed to, by the way, even though many churches, so-called, are trying to flow with the current of the day, we're supposed to go against the... Um, we, we stand for truth, which goes against what the world is teaching. But anyhow, the Philippians probably were being persecuted, and he's encouraging them, even in persecution, Christian, you and I need to stand fast. You and I need to still stand for truth because our strength comes from the Lord. Again, <clears throat> verse 1 starts with the word, Therefore, because of Christ's soon return, we should be motivated to stand fast. But he says in the end of verse 4, So stand fast in the Lord. It's first used in verse 1, used in verse 2, used in verse 4, because understand something. Our strength does not come from within. Our flesh is weak. You know, oh, you can do anything you put your mind to. You've you got the strength within you. No, listen, when it comes to serving God, you do not have the strength within you. Your flesh will not serve God. You need to be in Christ, in the Lord, and He gives you the strength to serve. He gives you the strength to stand fast. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 18, too. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my strength. And whom will I trust? My buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. We you know, Paul gives this exhortation in love. He says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Do you get the idea Paul loved these people? He's not sitting there condemning them. He's not sitting there chastising them. He says, folks, I love you so much, I must tell you, stand fast. Stand fast for what truth. Fellowship with other Christians should bring joy. It says, my joy and crown. Now, this is not a royal crown. This is the Greek word Stephanus, or the victor's crown. You are my crown and joy. Think of that. You know, when we get to heaven... All those souls whom we have led to Christ will equate to crowns. Isn't that amazing? 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For ye are our glory and joy. So Paul gives the exhortation to stand fast. Now he turns to our disposition. That's our position. Stand fast. Now, how do we stand fast? Well, one, we need to serve in unity. Part of ministry of the local church is for all to come into unity. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, And they gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting or the maturing of the saints 
for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto a measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. We need to serve with unity. Freedom Baptist Church has been blessed over the years. Now, we have had times where it's not perfect unity here, but I will say for the 14 years I've been here, I think most of the time God has blessed this church with a unity that many churches do not experience, and I praise God for that. Because I've been in many churches where you do not talk to certain folks, and, you know, I've been in churches where they have a A service and a B service, because the people from the B service don't want to talk to the A people, and the A team doesn't want to talk to the B team. And I don't know if you've ever seen churches like that, but a house divided cannot stand. The Word of God makes that clear, right? Matthew 12, 25 Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. You know, many times Satan knows that he cannot destroy a church from without because God has put a hedge of protection about us, right? Many times. And, and so, I mean, there, he does try to uh, attack from without, but what he tries to do in his subtle tactics is try to divide from within. You know, it has been said for many years about our nation that it will never be taken over from an exterior power. It'll destroy itself from within. And look at what our nation is doing. It is destroying itself from within. And I have seen churches destroy themselves from within. This group against this group. And then they start building their teams up. Because, you know, that's so godly, right? Instead of going and reconciling, they start talking about so-and-so and, and, you know, well, basically making people take sides. And then the church becomes divided. And some, well, usually it's the most ridiculous things. I mean, churches are split over the colors of carpet. It's stupid. It really is. I am glad, again, the rule we have around here that everybody knows and everybody kind of abides by, unless you're willing to do better, don't complain about what somebody else did to help the church out, right? And so... I didn't hear a single complaint when the porch was built out there because everybody's like, I didn't have to do it. That's good. That's the way it should be, right? Looks good. And it does look good. But most importantly, our unity is in doctrine. Now, I had a guy come here years ago who told me, he said, I don't agree with the church stand on alcohol and I don't agree with your stand on King James only. He says, so I'll never be able to join here. And he goes, and I'll never try to change you. He says, but I enjoy your preaching, so my wife and I are going to continue to come here. But we're not going to join this church. And if I recall, I did say to him, I said, I think you should find a church where you can feel comfortable and join because you should be a member. But he insisted he was going to stay here. And I remember the last day he was here because he was talking to me about Gideon's. And I said, look, we help ministries publish Bibles. I said, but the ministries we help publish King James only. I said, I appreciate the ministry of the Gideons. I I really do. I wish they had not left the printing of King James only. I said, but since they have, I cannot, with a clear conscience, help them print Bibles in other versions. Well, you're dead wrong because they're such a good organization. And he goes, and I pray someday God will change you as he walked out those doors after he told me he would never try to change my stand. You know what I learned from that? Some people 
just want to create division. But he says that we need to focus our thoughts on Christ. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and long for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I'm sorry, we're in verse 2. I beseech Eudeus and Syntyche, beseech Syntyche to be of the same mind, to be in agreement, to be in agreement. You know, if we're all focused on Christ, we're going to be in agreement. And, and these small little details that people fight about won't matter anymore. And again, he says, in the Lord, our thoughts need to be focused on Christ because our unity comes from him. Again, focusing on the eternal values. Now, I want you to imagine, okay, now think of this. This book was distributed to church, maybe even many house churches in Philippi, and read aloud. Okay, so I want you to imagine now, we just got this letter from Paul, right? And now here sit um, Yodius and Syntyche. And so I'm reading, I beseech Yodius and I beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind. How would you like to be one of those two ladies right about now? Don't think that would be fun. It's interesting that Paul hears about this division in the church, these two not cooperating with each other, and he addresses it in a letter that's going to be read publicly to the whole church. Maybe that's how we should handle things. No, it's not. <laughs> Just start calling them out from the pulpit. That probably would not be a good idea. But here's an interesting play on words. Sin the key. Sin the key. Why is there divisions? Because of sin. Why is there strife? Because of sin. Strife and division is a result of sin in our lives. Now, interesting though, as Paul is writing this, he says, I beseech, and he mentions each of the ladies after a beseech. Beseech is the parakaleo. It's the word from which we get paraclete. You know what that is? One who comes alongside. In other words, he's not saying, I look down my long, uh, pharisaical nose at you and judge you. He's saying, look, I'm going to come alongside you and say, let's work together. Let's realize we're on the same team. Let's have the same mind. Whatever this little division is, it's probably petty. Let's put it aside and let's work together. He's firm, but gentle. That's how we need to be, firm but gentle. So I think there's a great example there of an exhortation of our disposition in standing united, how Paul tells these to be united, but he does it as gently and firmly as possible. Now our last exhortation. Paul gives the exhortation to serve together. Verse 3, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with many other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Those ministering in the gospel need help. You do realize not everything is the preacher's job. By the way, I want to say thank you to all who came out Friday and yesterday to help with the Christmas float. Um, it, it's a team effort. It takes teamwork to clean the church every week, takes a team. To fill all the different positions necessary, takes a team, right? 
I'm glad, Charlie mentioned this the other week, I'm glad Ed is part of the team in leading music, aren't you? You don't have to listen to me leading, I get it. Now, women did not have public preaching or teaching because it's clear in Second Tim, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, it is interesting to me how many people I talk to when they talk about their pastor, they say she this and she that. I'm like, oh, I try not to act surprised, but I still do get surprised. I remember one day an ambassador, this was hilarious, Dr. Comfort had a special meeting there at the college, and he wanted to recognize all the pastors present. So he says, would all the pastors and ministers that are here today please stand up and be recognized? And this lady stands up among them, and he's just like, smiles. And he has everybody introducing themselves, including her. And all we students sat there and giggled uh, because it just kind of struck us as humorous. (laughs) Knowing that He probably inside was boiling, thinking, how do I do that? So from then on, what I noticed is he says, would all the men in ministry please stand? (laughs) He changed it. He did. He changed it so that he would not be embarrassed again. So look, ladies, I don't understand why ladies think this is demeaning to them, because it's not. But we do realize, again, God has created a leadership if you will, in the home of a, the man is the home, it's a positional leadership. And so God has created positional leadership in the church, and he's given that responsibility to men, not women. Now, I don't understand why a woman would desire it, I'll be honest with you, but apparently some do. Um, Now, this does not mean that women can't teach children. It doesn't mean that women can't teach other women but women are not to be teaching men. I'm probably preaching to the choir with this group because you all are in agreement with it, But because that's what God said. But again, we get things so topsy-turvy in our society today, don't we? So those in ministry do need help. We all have the responsibility of spreading the gospel. Ladies, there are others that you can reach that I'll never be able to reach. But we all need to have a good testimony. He says, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, true comrade, be the one that is ready to help. You know, it's hard to have a critical attitude when you're one volunteering to do the work. It's hard to have a critical attitude toward others when you're praying for others. But it's real easy to be critical of others when you're sitting there condemning what they're doing as you're sitting on the sidelines. Get involved. Now, I understand we are a small work, and I understand sometimes it feels like I just did that. Now I'm signed up again. Well, here's what we can do. Pray for laborers. Pray for laborers. Because, yes, there are some who, when I've approached them and said, would you mind serving, they have said no. I don't understand. I really don't. You know what I need to do? Pray for them. Pray that God convicts them. You know, part of the reason why I had us read our covenant the other week is because I want everybody to be reminded this is not just an earthly institution. This is a divine institution. And it needs to have precedence over every other institution. We don't have church services just for the sake of filling up a Sunday or for the sake of filling up a Wednesday. 
but we do it because I believe every service is unique and has a purpose in helping us grow closer to God. The fellowship times we have, the different events we do, all of them are with a purpose. You see, when I got here, I wrote a mission purpose statement for this church. Tried to make it scriptural. You all have a copy of it. Should. If you don't, I'll get you a copy of it. And everything we do, I try to put it against that. Is this going to help us accomplish this goal, yes or no? It really is a simple way to help filter out activities that we don't start straying and just do activities for activity's sake. Right? Because every activity we have should have a purpose, whether it be outreach, whether it be Christian growth, whether there, but there needs to be a purpose and a reason behind the activity we're doing. But let us work together in harmony here because we're going to spend eternity together. So, you know, I'm sure you've heard preachers say, let's learn how to get along here because we've got all eternity to be together. So let us learn how to work together in harmony. I love the fact that I, as he's writing, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, hope those women which labored with me in the gospel with Clement also. You know what we know about Clement? Right there, to the best of my knowledge. You know what I love about this? God knows you by name. So many, their goal in life is to have their name known and remembered by men and known by others, to have fame, to have recognition. That's a poor motive. You know, even we preachers can fall into that trap. Oh, it'd be nice to be remembered like Spurgeon. Long after I'm gone, people still remember his name. Well, I don't write like Spurgeon, so that's probably not going to happen. I want to be the man used of God to see a great revival come. You know, I've thought about that, and I question, can God use such a man to see a great revival come? Because if that's your attitude, then when it comes, he's going to be about, look at me. All right, the Bible does name names. And so there's a man who went to the same college I did, who I believe used to truly preach the gospel. But even when I was in college, and again, I'm not trying to sound judgmental, but I even told my wife back then, I said, I love his message, but he seems to be what I call a showboat. He talked a lot about himself and loved the accolades. This man today is quite known because of his Facebook. Some of what he preaches or at least what I see, I don't really actually listen to him anymore. Um, and for years, I believe he's been drifting. His music standards have dropped totally. And, but he, very self-promoting, I'll put it that way. His name is Greg Locke. How many have heard of him? Greg used to be, I believe, doing it for the right reasons. And again, I can't assign motives, but I'll tell you what I observe. I think Greg does what he does for Greg. You disagree with me? And you can show me that, you bring it to me. But I do not believe he is one who is desiring to follow and doing it for the glory of God, because everything we do needs to be done for the glory of God. But I kind of got off track there a little bit. <clears throat> God knows you by name. Clement is mentioned here. Exodus 33:17. The Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Interesting in that conversation between Moses and God, Moses says to God, you know me by name. And God says, yes, I do, Moses. I know you by name. 
I want you to stop and think about that for just a moment. The God of all creation knows you by name. He cares about you. He cares about the details of your life. When you look at the vastness of space and all the things and all the people in this world, you know, God is not too busy for you. He cares about you. And it's interesting that to me that the Holy Spirit of God, as he's giving Paul the words to say, says, I want you to mention my servant Clement in this passage to be recorded for all eternity. So when we get to heaven, we'll find out who this individual is. That'll be pretty neat, won't it? Oh, you're that guy mentioned in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Who are you? But then he says about these that labored with him in the gospel, with Clement also, and with many other fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Again, it's said in ancient civilizations that they had a book of citizens. How would you like to be the bookkeeper for that? John, Bob, actually they didn't have any simple names like that. But anyhow, you're writing down everybody who lives in your city. Way you keep a census, right? And truthfully, our government kind of does the same thing still today. They're supposed to do it by numbers, but they know who you are and they know where you live. In case you were wondering. So God has a book of the citizens of heaven. And aren't you glad your name is in that book? If you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, your name is in the book that God has of these are the citizens of my heaven. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And I am so thankful that when I stand before Christ and the books are opened, that my name is right there. He belongs here. He has a citizenship here. As a matter of fact, we made a place for him. We sang about that earlier, didn't we? The mansion over the hilltop. And then to be able to hear, welcome home. Wow. That's going to be amazing, isn't it? And you know, I'll never be questioned because my name is in that book. So Paul, writing to these Philippians, saying, whose names are in the book of life. Now I've heard... People describe about the names in the book of life and how are they placed there. When is your name written down? When is it blotted out? Let's not get lost in the weeds with it. The truth is, is those who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, their name is written in that book of life. My personal belief, if you care to know, is that the moment you're born, your name is written down, but if you die without Christ, your name is blotted out. Could it be that way? I don't know. Because it talks about being blotted out of the book of life. So it means your name was there. Why was it there? Well, because you had life, but you didn't have eternal life. Therefore, you will have eternal death. But if that's not how it is, let's not split the church over it. All right? Again, not trying to get lost in the weeds, but sometimes some of the things people want to get hung up on. Exhortations concerning our position and our disposition. Yes, we must stand fast. We must have a proper position. But as we stand, we need to stand united, which means when there's divisions in, among us, we need to handle them in a biblical fashion. And Paul beseeching these two ladies to reconcile their differences so that they could work united was Paul's way of trying to say, 
you got the wrong disposition. We can't sit here and fight with each other. We're never going to get anything accomplished that way. Get it reconciled. Let's move forward. And then our disposition of serving together. Paul recognizes those who helped serve while he was there and those who are continuing in the ministry while he's gone. And probably like many churches, few people doing most of the work. And Paul is saying, look, folks, you've got to get up and participate. You know, Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's one in which we participate. And you want to have the joyful, abundant life that Christ has promised. You cannot sit on the sidelines. You cannot just come to church to be fed. You've got to be a participant. You've got to actively be serving God day in and day out. And that's how you will enjoy the Christian life. In closing, and yeah, I'm going a little over, but that's all right. John, I did not plan on saying this, but just came to mind. So I'm going to mention it real quick. And it's not where I thought it was. Give me a moment. Well, I'm not going to sit here and keep taking time. Um, But Jesus, after he had washed the disciples' feet, says that he's given an example. And he says, happy are ye if ye do these things. In other words, you, you want to be, have a happy life, learn to serve. You want to be happy in your Christian life, learn to serve. So let's have not just the proper position, but the proper disposition in our lives.